We're going to be looking at a familiar passage. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 2. It's a passage in which we read about the flight to Egypt. Last week, we had read the passage that immediately comes after this, the so-called slaughter of the innocents. King Herod, if uh, they had had scare quotes or air quotes in the day, that's exactly how Matthew would have used them to talk about King Herod, heard that there was a new king in town, and in his paranoia, he lashed out and sought to do away with the king by slaughtering all of the children in and around Bethlehem. Today we're going to look at the passage that comes immediately before that. The wise men had come to town. They had asked Herod where the baby was, the newborn king. They found out where he was. They went. An angel told them to leave by another way. And then we read this. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Brothers and sisters, it's the word of the Lord to us. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this place. We thank you for this time that you have set apart. We thank you for the invitation to enter into your presence and the welcome and the warm embrace that we receive, as stunning as that is. And we thank you for the gift of this, your word, indeed the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, And we thank you that you, as Calvin says, stoop to us and lisp to us in a language that we can understand. Even so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would strengthen us in our inner being that we may behold the wonder of your great love for us through your son, Jesus, that we might be changed. For we pray it in Jesus. Amen. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, and so we are in our Advent series. And for my sake, I have taken as um, my rubric this expression that we're very familiar with that comes to us from Peter's uh, first epistle, in which he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love, he tells us, covers a multitude of sins. And we saw last week that Matthew might in fact quibble a little bit with Peter 
arguing most more forcefully that love doesn't simply cover a multitude of sins, but love covers the multitude of sins, the multiplying multitude of sin and all of its consequences in their every dimension, height and depth, width and length, covering the multitude of humanity's sin. Herod's sin, my sin, your sin, and all of its consequences. Destroying it, reversing its effects, making all things corrupted by sin now new, as far even as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. Indeed, covering it in such a way that the curse is somehow transformed, somehow reversed, and is replaced by a blessing. What wondrous love is this that can do that? It is this multitude of sins, along with the anguish that they cause, that Matthew seeks to capture in the quick but terrifying snapshot of Herod's slaughter of the Bethlehem innocents that we saw last week. In light of the promise of baptism last week, and in the celebration of Advent, as we looked at that snapshot of Herod, we wondered, why do we even celebrate Advent? Why would we bring, such, bring children into such a world, we wondered. Such questions are really a subset of a larger and more pressing question. In a world in which such terror and terrorism is common and multiplying, it seems, every day, what's one to do? How can one hope to live a holy life in such a profane and sin-sick world? How can one hope to live a loving life in such a hate-twisted world. Especially when one in an agonizing peak of honesty and self-awareness realizes that the spirit of Herod is alive and well today and resides quite comfortably and quite naturally in each one of our hearts and comes to expression in 10,000 moments of our everyday. For we should note, the spirit of Herod, the horror of Herod, is not his murder of the innocents. But it's rather in his passionate commitment to his own rule over his own realm. That's the terror of Herod. That's the horror of Herod. And when I recognize that, I recognize that's the horror of my own heart. I am king, I declare in 10,000 moments of my every day. I will have no other rule over me. Not my wife, not my kids, not my job, no other. No king but me. 
In the spirit of Herod, we find ourselves praying quite naturally. Nonetheless, not your will, but my will be done. My kingdom come, my will be done in heaven as it is on earth. For mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. For great is my faithfulness, O Lord, unto me, unto me. The spirit of Herod did not die with Herod, but is alive and well even today. As such people in such a world, how can we hope to live faithfully? Indeed, how can we hope to love faithfully? That's precisely the question that Peter has been addressing in his epistle. What does the living hope that is now ours by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what does the living hope look like in a world gone so horribly bad? Well, it looks, as Peter describes it, as a loving holiness or a holy love. This is what he has in view then when he says, love covers a multitude of sin. He's not speaking about a warm, fuzzy sentimentality. He's speaking about the love of God revealed in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. That's the love that covers a multitude of sins. That's the love with which Peter is exhorting his readers to love one another. It looks like loving holiness, and that's the love that covers a multitude of sins. That is, the love of Christ expressing itself in the loving holiness of his people takes on and puts to rights the multiplying multitude of sin that seems to be flooding the world in which we live. Last week, we considered that as embodied in the spirit of Herod. This week, we begin to consider what kind of love can adequately deal with such a multiplying multitude of sins. I had a conversation with someone who had returned from service overseas in the military, and this is the theme that came up in our conversation. Now, he has looked evil in the eye. And he thinks that he knows pretty convincingly that love will not cover the multitude of sins that he saw in the Middle East. And yet, it's what Peter says, and this is what Matthew's gospel is all about, and this is what Advent is about. The question is not, Will any old kind of love cover a multitude of sins? The question is really, if love covers, the multi- covers a multitude of sins, then what kind of love will do that? Today we will look at the loving vulnerability of Christ's love. This is the love that we begin to realize is that is the love that is the undoing of the dragon in Revelation. So here we have a story. The Magi have come. They have 
offered him gifts, they have worshipped him, they've been warned and they've departed. Now, when they had departed, remember, just refreshing your memory, when the Magi had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. This is the second time that the, that the Lord had appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, flee to Egypt. The child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. The love of Christ is a vulnerable love. The love of Christ actually enters into the vulnerability. It's really strange to look at this, but here we have a child and his mother. And here it seems that all of the powers that be are aligning themselves against this child and this child's family. This family has no resources. This family is away from their home. Remember that they were from Nazareth and they had traveled to Bethlehem because of the census. They didn't have the network of relationships that they're accustomed to having. They didn't have the connections to say, hey, can you talk to Herod and see if you can talk some reason into him? They were exposed And it pleased Jesus to enter into that circumstance, even as he enters into our circumstance. It's a stunning thing to realize that when Jesus actually enters into their circumstance, he doesn't enter into their circumstance as one who himself is not vulnerable. Often, isn't it true, when we want to help someone, we help someone in such a way that we do not risk our vulnerability. We don't put ourselves at risk. We try to get as close as we can to help without risking our own safety or our own health or our own cleanliness, our own security, our own resources. But this is not how Jesus has done this. Jesus, the second thing here, not only enters into our vulnerability, but Jesus, the love of Jesus itself becomes vulnerable. He comes not as a man who is strong to deliver. Remember what the prophets had said. Come, Lord, in your glory, defeat our enemies. And so the idea is that the, that the king will come riding in on a steed. And he will conquer and he will defeat. And so we can sympathize with the people who said, A baby? Are you kidding me? Where's the glory? This is the glory. This is the glory. Jesus Christ himself becomes vulnerable. Matthew, in this, even in these three verses, 13, 14, and 15, 
has said the child, rise and take the child. And he rose and took the child and departed to Egypt and remained there. Rise, take the child as mother and flee. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child, destroy him. So he rose and he took the child. Three times he speaks about this child. 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 Who is this? Most of us have been coming to church long enough. Most of us have gone through Advent season enough times. Most of us have celebrated Christ Mass enough that we know, I know, I know who the child is. It's Jesus! But the more pertinent question is, how does Jesus, the cosmic king, the creator, as John says in John chapter 1, how is it that he finds himself in these circumstances? Something must have gone horribly wrong. Isn't that how we think of our own vulnerability? Isn't that how we think of the vulnerability of the people around us? Oh, yeah. I know how you got there. We've been reading news of the, in recent weeks, of the dramatic fall from position and power of well-known, wealthy men. Ah, we know how that happened. Fool. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is it that the cosmic king, the creator king, finds himself in such a helpless state? How is it that the cosmic creator king finds himself as one of the most vulnerable beings in the midst of a, one of the most vulnerable kinds of families as a display of his power? It's important for us to allow the import of that question to settle upon us. Because most of us spend an entire, our entire lives seeking to avoid such circumstances, such vulnerability, such helplessness, such a sense of hopelessness. How did this happen? Paul tells us how it happened in his letter to the Philippians. Just listen. Just listen. Listen carefully. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking about this child that Matthew has just mentioned. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What in the world? Jesus willingly emptied himself of all that was rightfully his and willingly took upon himself our vulnerability, our frailty, and entrusted himself to our foolishness. That's absolutely ridiculous. Why would he do that? Well, why indeed? Because, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. This is love. Because the love of the triune God compels such behavior. This is what we in our Calvinistic tradition refer to as irresistible grace. This is the irresistible compulsion of the love of the triune God. This is the glory of the triune God's love. To take on the weakness of human flesh and to delight to make his dwelling with mankind. That is the glory of the triune God's love. This is central to the scandal of the gospel. This is central to the scandal that John highlights throughout the gospel and his epistles. To make oneself vulnerable in order to step into the unpredictable ups and downs and vulnerabilities of the other in order to know them and to love them and to care for them is the beating heart of God's love. To put at risk my own position, to put at risk my own prestige, to put at risk my own privileges, to put at risk what I imagine to be my own rights, to put at risk my own dreams and desires, to put at risk my own plans and priorities, to put at risk my own safety and security, to put at risk my health and wholeness in order to promote the health and the wholeness of my beloved, who, by the way, may even be my enemy. This is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the triune God's glorious love. That is the beating heart of God's glory, which we celebrate in the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. It is not sweet sentimentality, but it is glorious. It is scandalous. And as Herod shows, it is terrifying because it means a new king's in town. 
It's interesting to note that not only does he enter into our vulnerability, not only does he take upon himself our vulnerability because that is the glory of God, but it's interesting to note he, in fact, is the cause of our vulnerability often. Now think about it. If she hadn't been, if the Holy Spirit had not made her pregnant with the, with the Christ child, they would not be in this predicament. If she had not given birth to the newborn king, they would not be under threat. And think even more. If she had not become pregnant with the Christ child by the Spirit, she would not have to endure the shame and the whispers that she no doubt had to endure throughout the years of Christ's Jesus' growing up. Oh, that's Mary. We remember what happened there. They have this crazy story, but we know what happened. And poor Joseph, what an idiot. He actually believed her. Oh, that's Jesus. We know who he is. You see, the presence of Jesus entering into our vulnerability actually, in a sense, magnifies it. In a sense, in a sense exacerbates it. What do we make all of this? What are we to make of all of this? What does it mean? Well, there's tremendous comfort in this, in this Christmas story. The fact of the matter is that Jesus willingly steps into our lives. There is no mess that you are in right now that Jesus is not pleased to step into because of his great love for you. Because that's who he is. That's who Jesus the Christ is. That's the glory of the triune God's love. He actually steps into it. I don't know how many times I have actually heard people say, I have to get myself in order before I come. But brothers and sisters, understand that misses the point. Because the glory of the triune God's love is that he steps into our mess. He steps into our vulnerability. He risks it all because of his great love for us. That is worth celebrating. That is worth dancing on about. That is worth celebrating. That is worth singing The comfort of Christmas is also the conviction of the Christmas story because this is how God's love rolls. I remember the stunning realization when I said to my wife one time, I love you. And I heard the whisper of the Spirit, really? What do you mean by that? And as upon reflection, I realized that what I meant by that was I love, I love the benefits that accrue to me by virtue of you being my wife. I didn't mean 
the, the risk of giving everything for her. That's the love of the triune God. Whatever I may call love that does not involve putting myself at risk for the beloved, it's not the love of the triune God. It's something that's worth noting, but it's not the love of the triune God. Because the love of the triune God risks it all in order to redeem the beloved. And that's the joy, and that's the privilege. That's how we get to love one another. Oh, nuts! Is it possible to just, like, receive the love and not participate in it? Because that would sure be nice. But no, because the love of the triune God irresistibly compels participation in the love of the triune God. It's not a step one and then later when you're ready, step two. It's a step one and two. They go together. They can't be separated. By the birth of Jesus, you see, we receive all the benefits and privileges of the fellowship of the triune God's great love so that we might participate in that one with another. This is why Peter says, love one another for love covers a multitude of sins. This is the love he has in view here. Okay, let's get practical here. How is it that profoundly sinful people like you and me are able to participate in the pure and holy love of the triune God? Because Dan, after all, Jesus was God. Of course, he can do that. What does it look like for us to do that? What does it look like for sinners to participate in the love of the triune God as we see here in terms of Jesus. Our participation means drinking deeply. I just realized Mana was wearing the TVP retreat t-shirt yesterday, and the theme was drink deeply, drink daily. And that's the theme we're talking about. Drink deeply, drink daily of the love of the triune God that comes to you in Jesus Christ so that we may live it one with another. John says in his first epistle that part of our, excuse me, it's James who says, who says that part of our participation in the healing love of the triune God is, what? Confessing our sins. Now, some of you are familiar with that passage from James chapter 5, and you're thinking to yourself, Dan, that's not what he says. The context, remember, is people who are sick. He's developing the theme, people are sick because of unconfessed sin. 
And this is James. It's not me. People are sick because of unconfessed sin. And so, he says, because of the love of the triune God by which you are made better, confess your sins. But he doesn't stop there. The exhortation is confess your sins one to another. I was talking with someone who said, I confess my sins to Jesus, so I don't have to worry about the people I sinned against. Because he forgave me, and so now it's all irrelevant. But brothers and sisters, that misses the point. It's because we have been washed clean in the loving vulnerability of Jesus Christ. It's because he has stepped into our mess and made us clean that now we are free to participate in that by confessing our sins one to another. Boy, that scares me. Do you know how risky it is to confess sin one to another? I imagine you do. Because I imagine you're thinking to yourself, there is no way. Because it risks our reputation. And our reputation is so important. Jobs depend on our reputation. We've seen that in recent headlines. Your reputation is gone. Everything's gone. I confess my sin. I risk my reputation. And that's the call of Christ's loving vulnerability. Have we been drinking deeply of the love of the triune God in Jesus Christ? Then he is our reputation. And we are free and equipped to confess our sins one to another. What about forgiveness? This is a tough one. This is a scary one. This is a painful one. This is a costly one. I had a conversation with someone who said, I'm a very forgiving person, but I can't forgive that. As though I have a right to a debt being paid to me. Because all that I have and all that I am is not mine because I have been bought at a price. The price of the triune God's glorious love. And so now I am free. Indeed, I am obligated. Indeed, I am irresistibly compelled to forgive. To grant forgiveness. And that is so scary because when it comes time to say it, we realize that we're, we're disrupting that fragile and all-important balance of power. What if, what if they don't reciprocate? What if they take advantage of me? What if they use it against me? That's a risk. That's a risk. That's the risk of participating in the glory of the triune God's love. Repentance is another one. These are just three. The examples abound. The idea of actually turning visibly away from one set of thoughts or one set of behaviors to actually take on something else. And we risk all that we have worked for all that we have accumulated, all that we have accomplished. Seriously? Repentance is the way sinful people 
participate in the mind of Christ. How do we do that? John chapter 13 gives us a hint. Jesus, knowing the Father, that he had come from the Father and he was going back to the Father, got up from the table and took on the form of a servant, risking everything to love even Judas, his enemy. Because, brothers and sisters, listen, that is the glory of the triune God's power to make all things new, to make me new, to make you new, to make us new, to make this valley new. That is the way love covers a multitude of sins. So, Father, we pray that we would see it and we would